to day on against the grain, labor organizing and trade unionism never got off the ground in the American South. What impact did that, does that have on race relations, on white supremacy, on inequality in the U.S.? I'm CS. We'll represent a conversation with the labor scholar and organizer Michael Goldfield coming right up. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. My name is C.S. Song. According to the political scientist Michael Goldfield, what happened to workers in the American South in the 1930s and 40s laid the groundwork for much of what followed, growing inequality, the perpetuation of white supremacy, the racist evolution of the Republican Party, and the white backlash against efforts to achieve racial justice. What happened was a lost opportunity, a failure to organize Southern workers on the basis of interracial worker solidarity. The last great chance to organize workers across racial and ethnic lines was, Goldfield argues, in the 1930s and 40s, and contemporary U.S. politics largely derives from what transpired and what wasn't realized in those critical decades. Michael Goldfield is Professor Emeritus of Political Science at Wayne State University and a veteran labor agitator and organizer. His new book is The Southern Key, Class, Race, and Radicalism in the 1930s and 1940s. When Mike joined me recently, I asked him whether, by titling his book The Southern Key, he meant that the South is key to understanding U.S. society and politics. Yes, I am. The history of the South and the present nature of the South is central to understanding everything that's happening in America today. And why is that? I mean, people might think this is a a region of the country. Sure, it's a fairly large region of the U.S., but why why the South as a a central part of, of what happens, a central influence on what happens throughout the U.S.? Well, this begins with slavery. The distinctive nature of the South begins with the early dependence on, on enslaved African labor. Between 1815 and 1860, cotton formed a majority of all domestic exports. And by 1860, the 12 wealthiest counties in the country were all in the cotton South. A majority of the early presidents were slave owners, as were speakers of the House, Supreme Court justices, president pro tems of the Senate. And the legacy of slavery and white supremacy has left a callous disregard for human dignity and the sanctity of human life in the South, which extends to the rest of the country as well. It's reflected, among other places, in the death penalty. Uh, We're somewhat unique of developed countries in having death penalty, and the distribution of death penalty executions is largely in the South. Over 80% of the almost 1,500 executions since the death penalty was reinstated in 1976 have been in the South, with over half in three states alone, Texas, Oklahoma, and Virginia. And this also means there are low levels of social support for those in need, children's health care, Medicare supplement, unemployment insurance, workman's compensation, disability of benefits. Um, the South has the lowest levels of unionization in the country, and it's probably far from a coincidence that Texas, which is relatively affluent, is the state with the largest percentage of people without health insurance. In 2015, 17.1% of Texans had no health insurance, which was nearly double the national average. So these lack of things that human beings need for survival and to live a decent life are concentrated and worse in the South. The other thing that the low levels of unionization in the South mean that there's much ignorance and superstition. So 
the South is the, has the largest percentage of whites who were birthers, people who believe that Barack Obama was born in Africa, not in the United States. The largest percentage of those who reject evolution and the existence of global warming. Uh, and in the South, there exists increased legislative pressure for teaching creationism in public schools. And this infiltrates textbooks throughout the rest of the country. Can you talk a little bit more about the connection you make between the low levels of unionization in the South and uh, popular ignorance on, on issues like evolution and climate change? What, what is the, the connection? What is the causal link there? I argue that low levels of working class organization leads to atomization, individualism, and increased receptivity to manipulation by dominant economic interests. So we can look at West Virginia, a state that at one point was fairly liberal, had over 50% unionization when there were well over 100,000 unionized coal miners in the state. And with the disappearance of coal and with it unionization, people have become deniers of global warming. Um, they've, it's the state that voted most for Donald Trump and there's a big existence of people who are birthers uh, in the state. So the South is that bastion of the country that casts a shadow over the rest of the United States. Let's go back in history, as you do in your book, The Southern Key, and talk about, well, I want to begin with the South in 1947, and not any part of the South, but Alabama. Why did the Nation magazine declare Alabama the most liberal state in the South in 1947? So the interesting thing about Alabama, Alabama is one of the deep South states, those states that had the highest percentage of slaves, uh, where cotton agriculture was most important. So the deep South are those where white supremacy was hardest strongest and most violent. Uh, in addition to Alabama, that would also include South Carolina, Mississippi, Louisiana, and Georgia. So in 1946, the CIO, the Congress of Industrial Organizations, endorsed left populist Big Jim Folsom as governor. And that's when the nation declared Alabama the most liberal state in the South. Um, he was pro-labor. He was non-segregationist. Uh, he argued for more opportunities for blacks. He stated that race, this is a quote, race was a phony issue, a ploy used by the rich and powerful to divide poor people and blind them to their common interests. He opposed the poll tax. Uh, he made a point of welcoming African-Americans to his campaign rally. So he really stood outside the consensus of the normal white politicians in the South. And the reason he was able to do this, uh, and what made Alabama exceptional in the South, it was the most unionized state in the South. Union membership had increased from approximately 70,000 in 1933 to over 200,000 in 1945. 25% of the labor force in that year was unionized. And to put this in perspective, uh, the percentage of workers unionized in Alabama at that time was higher than exists in any state in the United States uh, today, which includes Michigan, California, New York, among the very unionized states. Um, the labor movement was centered in the Birmingham area. Uh, the United Mine Workers were organized. They were an anti-racist union at the time. And they helped organize pretty much the rest of the state, including steel workers, woodworkers, textile workers, and even school teachers and principals in some counties. So in other words, the United Mine Workers, I think uh, I see that there were around 23,000 unionized coal miners in the Birmingham, Alabama area. They didn't address only workers or try to help only workers in that area. They aided in the organization of, of other workers? Yeah, they, they aided in the organization of workers around the state. But in the six counties near Birmingham, where they were quite strong, 
they engaged in what we call today wall-to-wall -to -wall unionizing. So they organized everybody. They organized farmers, woodworkers, and like I said, even in one county, they had all the school principals organized. Um, and then they spread that out to textile workers around the state. Textile was a big industry to woodworkers, woodworkers being lumberjacks and sawmill workers. Um, so they really helped spread unionism around the state and they became unionized workers became a major force in the state, which was allowed this more left-wing populist uh, Big Jim Folsom to get elected governor. A similar story could be told in Louisiana, uh, where the left populist oriented long regime rejected strong uh, segregationist stances. Earl Long, who was elected governor in 1950 in Louisiana, opposed the White Citizens Council, uh, supported black enfranchisement, and in 1958 he authorized Louisiana State University's New Orleans branch to enroll a thousand whites and 200 blacks, making it the only educational institution in the South at that time that was integrated. So this was a result in these two states of a very strong uh, interracial union movement. So the point of these stories is the possibilities for interracial union organizing and progressive impact on politics was strong in some places in the South. And my book argues that it could have been strong throughout the South. Is it fair to say, Mike, that places with high levels of union membership voted in more liberal, less racist public officials? That was certainly the case in Alabama and Louisiana. In the Deep South states, African-Americans were largely disenfranchised, although the mine workers around Birmingham tried to register black as well as white workers. We can also see spots where this took place. So the oil industry um, in 1941 was organized in the South. So oil was primarily in Texas and Oklahoma, where it remains um, today. So in Texas, one of the most right-wing congressmen was a fellow named Martin Dyes, who set up the House on american Activities Committee. When the oil workers at the big installation, 10,000 oil workers in Port Arthur organized, they decided that their main thing was to get rid of him because he was so anti-labor. And they organized so effectively that he resigned his position and didn't run again. And they elected a fairly liberal, anti-racist congressman from that area. So my argument is that if these things had become more widespread, then the nature of the South would have, would have changed. And the South, as I argue in the book, was a drag on the rest of the country. We're talking with Michael Goldfield. He's Professor Emeritus of Political Science at Wayne State University. His new book is The Southern Key, Class, Race, and Radicalism in the 1930s and 1940s. It's just out from Oxford University Press. I'm C.S. Song, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. What you do in this book is to highlight in a number of sectors and a number of locales in a number of states in the South, uh, places where there was some organizing, some militancy among workers who at certain times certainly took great risks in creating unions, bringing people into unions. Uh, let's talk about coal miners. You referred to the Knights of Labor and I think here we're talking about before the 1930s and 40s, the focus of your book. But uh, to what extent can we can we see a kind of union organizing energy that people might be surprised of when they hear about how anti-union the South is? The, the South, as the country as a whole, has gone through periods of union upsurges. There was certainly a union upsurge in the country as a whole in the 1870s and 1880s uh, in the North and throughout the country, including in California, the building of the Transcontinental Railroad 
led to railroads being central to the company and huge amount of unionism, massive railroad strikes, etc. In the South, the major industries, one of which was coal, organized during this period, textile, which was in the process of moving to the South, also organized. Uh, so the Knights of Labor, which was an interracial labor organization organized across race lines. Uh, and they were fairly successful throughout the South. Uh, another period when unions were fairly successful was during World War I. The economy was booming. The economy was supplying um, goods to fight the war. Uh, nothing could really be imported at that time because the oceans were uh, dangerous. So uh, employment was full and unions throughout the South and the rest of the country gained a large amount of membership. In just a few years, they, they almost doubled their membership by the end of war, which ended in 1918. Are we talking here also about the uh, Brotherhood of Timber Workers? Uh, they were active in the, the 1910s, 19-teens, right? Yeah, so the Brotherhood of Timber Workers was organized in the Deep South, and they eventually affiliated with the Industrial Workers of the World, or Wobblies, a radical revolutionary union organization. And they were fairly successful for several years. They were interracial. The woodworkers then, and also during the period that I look at in the 1930s and 1940s, were roughly... 50% African-American, 50% white. Uh, the woodworkers had a fair amount of solidarity and the um, Wobblies or IWW led a fairly militant type of unionism in the South. You referred earlier to the CIO, the Congress of Industrial Organizations, one of the large umbrella trade unions, national trade unions, how about the AFL or AFL, the American Federation of Labor? Did, did that organization offer any aid or assistance to those labor unions in the South that were of a militant mindset? Well, as happens during times of upsurge, the AFL, which started out fairly conservative, got swept along uh, in the upsurge. They also were strong in certain areas where there were a lot of black workers. So that was true in Longshore, longshoremen loading ships, important on the West Coast also. But in New Orleans and the, and the Gulf area and in the Southeast, in the South, these were AFL longshore unions uh, and the AFL gave them a certain amount of support. They also got involved because they were competing for members with the with the CIO. So this um, pushed them in a more militant direction. And we find that this happens almost invariably during periods of upsurge. I mean, that happened in the civil rights movement also, that the more stodgy organizations got swept along and some of them became more militant. You are suggesting, however, that in times of non-upsurge, in times when there wasn't a growing a labor organizing drive that uh, perhaps the AFL was not particularly interested in interracial union organizing or progressive union organizing in the South? Oh, absolutely. And in fact, by the end of World War II, much of the impetus for interracial union organizing among mainstream unions had diminished. The, the unions that pushed that interracial unionism, with the exception of the coal miners, the unions that pushed it the most tended to be left-led, usually communist-led unions. Now, Mike, tell us about the, there's a kind of a myth out there, propagated by uh, certain commentators, no doubt, of a docility or a lack of interest in unionism on the part of Southern workers Give us a little bit of the contours of that myth and tell me whether you believe that it accords with reality. This is, this is a myth that continues to this day. 
the South being a place where labor is cheaper, where companies often go from the North uh, to get cheaper labor, and the claim is that uh, workers are more docile and they're less likely to unionize. The reality is that often the repression against unions has been greater in the South, which has made it more difficult for them to organize. But we saw in the 1930s, coal miners organized, steel workers organized, longshore workers organized. In a number of I industries, workers successfully organized. The metal mining uh, industry was a big industry, certainly in Alabama, um, and they organized also. So rather than it being a question of culture, it was more likely a question of repression and the failure of leadership to take the steps necessary for workers to organize. And there was really competition in the labor movement about what tactics should be done and how much you needed to mobilize people to accomplish things. You are listening to Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. My name is C.S. Song. Michael Goldfield is my guest. He is Professor Emeritus of Political Science at Wayne State University. His books include The Decline of Organized Labor in the United States and The Color of Politics, Race and the Mainsprings of American Politics. We are talking about his new book. It's called The Southern Key, Class, Race, and Radicalism in the 1930s and 1940s. And Mike, I want to move uh, more into the 30s and 40s specifically, because in this book, you make um, a specific argument, a very powerful argument about the role that the CIO, the Congress of Industrial Organizations, played in what happened in terms of labor unionism in the South in these two decades. So let's start this way. What can you tell us about the inclination among the CIO leadership, either on the national or the regional, the southern level, uh, that might incline the CIO either to support labor organizing in the South or, or to, to step aside or to step back from it? I argue that in the CIO there was an early impetus for successful uh, interracial organizing which was largely abandoned by the more conservative leaders, and conservative here means liberal as opposed to left-wing, are the most conservative leaders of the CIO. They had a view that um, they should peacefully get contracts, they should be have cooperative relations with Southern employers, none of whom ended up wanting to cooperate with them. They opposed aggressively pushing civil rights issues, they imposed um, very militant mass mobilizations. You mean to say they opposed militant mass mobilizations? Right. This wasn't the case in the mid-1930s when there was really no alternative. But after World War II, when they decided to organize the South or, or to put, put a lot of resources and be aggressive at organizing the South, they refused to hire any left-wing organizers. They were afraid of being called communists, so they hired virtually all white male veterans, most of whom had little experience in organizing. Uh, they were still attacked and red-baited, even though they did this. So they didn't have a competent strategy for the South. In textile, an industry that was almost half female, they had almost no female organizers. So their approach, um, they thought if they put on a good show that the employers would accept them. That didn't turn out to be the case. Tell me about the faction of this within the CIO that, that was militant, that was radical, and, and how that faction and this uh, liberal faction interacted or engaged in conflicts such that the more liberal, the more moderate faction won out? So the more conservative faction, the liberals in the CIO, were much more concerned about controlling everything that went on rather than the success of the union. Uh, 
you see that in unions today. Um, dissidents get isolated. Uh, people in power are more concerned with staying in power than being successful. This was true particularly in the South. Um, they relied on passing laws and their friends in Washington, D.C., much as much of the labor movement is today. They're concentrated their efforts on labor law reform rather than militant organizing of unorganized workers. Uh, so it's an orientation, thinking that the laws and friends in Washington will help you out rather than putting your emphasis on organizing in a solidaristic way workers for change. Who was Adolf Germer and what role does he play in your story? Adolf Germer was a top operative for the CIO. Um, he started out as a Socialist Party activist and he slowly moved to the right, uh, became very suspicious of workers' militancy, saw communists hidden under every leaf and tree, even when there were none there. Um, and he was into accommodating the more racist people uh, in the labor movement and also in the Deep South. He supported often the most conservative people who would do what he said, even if they were incompetent. In early 1946, the CIO's executive board launched Operation Dixie, an attempt to unionize all Southern industry. How encouraging was at least the announcement of Operation Dixie for people interested in militant labor organizing? And what was the result of that, of that operation, of that initiative? So this is an interesting question, because I originally believed that Operation Dixie was a serious attempt to try to organize the South, and that its failure was a turning point in American history. But when I came to study Operation Dixie, I found it not to be as serious as I had thought it had been. When I looked at the amount of resources that were put into it um, compared to what had been done in the 1930s in two industries, steel and textile, it turned out that only a fraction of the money and organizers was put into organizing the whole South in Operation Dixie compared to two massive campaigns in the 1930s. And one would have expected a more affluent labor movement in 1946, which had grown from 3 million in 1933, 3 million members, to almost 15 million in 1945, to have way more resources to be able to put into organizing the South. And the South was really critical for American unions because if one part of the country was not organized, that was a lever employers could use over the rest of the labor movement. Companies could move uh, their, their operations, or if they had southern operations, they could expand them, pay lower wages, non-union wages, and make it more difficult for, for unionists in the north and the west to, and the midwest to raise more far-reaching demands. So in that sense, the failure of Southern labor organizing really crippled a lot of the broad perspective of labor in the rest of the country. I mean, and that's why the South is key, and I call the book The Southern Key. Michael Goldfield is his name, Professor Emeritus of Political Science at Wayne State University, a veteran labor agitator and organizer in a variety of industries, author of, most recently, The Southern Key, Class, Race, and Radicalism in the 1930s and 1940s. We'll take a short break and return and speak more with Mike about his very interesting book. Please stay with us.
and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. My name is C.S. Song. Michael Goldfield joins us. He teaches or he taught for many years political science at Wayne State University, where he is a fellow at the Fraser Center for Workplace Issues. And his new book is The Southern Key, Class, Race, and Radicalism in the 1930s and 1940s. So what you're saying about Adolf Germer and his associates in the CIO and their, their racial insensitivity, or worse, their racism, uh, this must have, Mike, really alienated blacks in the South, black workers in the South, who could have really injected a lot of energy and, of course, personnel into organizing drives. Absolutely. So one thing we find in the 1930s, um, as we find today, black workers tended to be even more pro-union than white workers. So they were more ready to organize. They were often the first to organize. And one of the strengths of interracial unionism in the South, and particularly that was true among coal miners, is that white coal miners realized that they could always depend on their fellow black workers who were often among the most militant and solidaristic of workers. So the fact that they weren't appealed to or they were snubbed by the more conservative CIO industrial union movement leaders left a bad taste in people's mouth. And we find the same um, proclivity towards unionism in polls that are taken today. Both black workers and women who tend to be lower down on the uh, wage scale express more pro-union attitudes than uh, white males. The worst thing, which I discuss in my book, was something that happened in Alabama. We had a very militant interracial left-wing union, the mine, mill, and smelter workers, a communist, a nationally communist-led union. And the steel workers, by that time, who'd become very conservative under Philip Murray, went in to break the union. They were supported by the Ku Klux Klan in Alabama and did not uh, disassociate themselves from it, and this left a bad taste among black workers throughout all of Alabama. So even in the 1950s, the NAACP, which was fairly conservative, was trying to figure out why they couldn't get black people in Alabama to support the CIO unions. And they did an investigation, and it turned out that People didn't want to be associated with the steel workers or other CIO unions in the 50s because of the role they had played and the racist things that they had done in terms of breaking the mine mill and smelter workers union. You said earlier, Mike, that part of the reason the CIO or many people, including Germer, were anti-militant was because they, they didn't want to be labeled as communists. And, and I... I wondered whether if McCarthyism and that brand of anti-communism had not arisen, whether you believe the CIO and other unions might have promoted and been more active in promoting interracial and radical labor organizing in the South. So it's possible that's, that's one part of it. But the white supremacists in the South who controlled the main southern states have always used anti-communism. I mean, that was true during the civil rights movement when there were hardly any actual communists involved. They equated interracialism um, with communism. That was also during the McCarthy period, one of the things that federal investigators used to decide whether someone was a communist. So if, if you look at the transcripts of interviews which have been released under Freedom of Information Acts, one of the questions they would ask whites is whether they ever had any black visitors at their house. And if the answer was yes, they decided that these people were a security risk because they had to be communists. So this attitude of coupling race and anti-communism was a strong um, thing. 
and that the same thing happened during the civil rights movement that anybody who spoke for fighting against black oppression in the south was called a communist you've argued that a look at what could have been accomplished had the south been organized on the basis of interracial worker solidarity can be gleaned from several instances of successful long-term civil rights unionism i want to begin with the case you bring up of ILWU Local 10, ILWU being the International Longshore and Warehouse Union. What was Local 10 in the San Francisco Bay Area able to achieve by the the 1970s? Local 10 was one of the leading unions in the 1934 West Coast Longshore Strike, which organized longshoremen, who previous to that had dreadful conditions being prone to, to injuries. They didn't have steady jobs. They were they had a, come to a shape up, which meant that the foreman picked who they wanted to work that day. So this particular local had strong communist leadership. The workforce of several thousand at the, at the San Francisco docks initially had less than a dozen African-Americans working there. But the communists pushed for black workers to be led into the union. Um, they elected them to leadership positions almost immediately, and they did initiatives which increased the numbers of blacks in the local. And today, the local itself, which continues to this day, is majority non-white. And a lot of this had to do with the activities of that union. So, And this union in the Bay Area engaged in a number of impressive things uh, fighting for racial equality. For example, in the mid-1940s, Local 10 forced the San Francisco Municipal Railway System to hire its first black driver. So public transportation drivers all across the North were all white at this point. Racist whites beat and whipped the driver on his first run Local 10 activists reacted by riding with the driver four or five at a time, and after that there were no racist attacks on the driver. So they played a role in integrating and getting African Americans hired in the transportation system. They integrated through boycott, picket, and financial pressure the Bay Area's building trades, department stores, local governments. And so this is what I mean by a labor-based civil rights movement. They were concerned not just with the important issues of access, which the 1960s civil rights movement had, but with making sure that people had jobs and equality of the jobs. They also integrated positions at Kaiser Hospital, still a big medical system in the Bay Area, uh, which at that point had all white, initially had all white employees. And they also made important decisions about which ships to load or unload, right? Absolutely. So they were a very political union. In 1969, when Alcatraz Island was occupied by Native American activists, they, they helped ship food and supplies to the people occupying Alcatraz. They also used their power... In 1962, they refused to unload the Dutch ship Rocky in protests of the South African apartheid regime. Um, they did it again in 1984. They refused to load and unload ships bound to or coming from military dictatorships. They refused to handle grapes during the United Farm Workers strike in 1965. So they played a significant role in the labor movement supporting progressive, solidaristic causes. Michael Goldfield is my guest. He is Professor Emeritus of Political Science at Wayne State University and the author of, most recently, The Southern Key, Class, Race, and Radicalism in the 1930s and 1940s. It's just out from Oxford University Press. And this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. If you go to our website, we are going to post a link that you can follow to order Mike's book online. And if you do it and use the discount code that's provided there, you can get a 30% discount off the regular price. Our website is against the grain, 
www.ocrpodcast.org. Click on the title of today's program. Another example of truly progressive and, in fact, radical interracial union organizing that you point to in your book comes from a local in Louisville, Kentucky, which seems a far distance away, both geographically and politically, from San Francisco. Tell us about the Farm Equipment Workers Local 236 and what they did in the 1940s. This is another left-wing union, the Farm Equipment Workers. Louisville, Kentucky is something of the South. That's also become an important focus of protest these days. That's where the police killed a black health care worker who was in her home when they burst through the doors. So Louisville has a checkered history in terms of race relations. So an international harvester plant was opened in 1946. It represented all production and maintenance workers. Actually, the way it was organized, they spent one black organizer to the plant who successfully organized this overwhelmingly white plant. Um, Local 236 had a large steward system, frequent meetings, very militant membership. From the beginning, its leaders and members, white as well as black, were unusually aggressive around civil rights issues. The showers, the bathrooms, the um, cafeteria were all segregated. Uh, They forced the company to integrate those facilities. And they interestingly not only did this in the plant, fighting for upgrading of black workers, they mobilized white and black members to fight for the integration of parks and hotels in Louisville. And this is in the late 1940s, a decade before any of this was happening in the rest of the country. Uh, They had a great deal of socializing involving wives and families of black and white workers outside the plant. Um, There are other instances of this type of interracial militant civil rights unionism around the South. And the other thing I argue is when the civil rights movement took place, anti-racist whites in the South were easily isolated, brutalized, Uh, economic sanctions against them. But in those places where several thousand workers were organized uh, in a union, they couldn't be so easily attacked either physically or economically. And so they became bulwarks for civil rights. And the tragedy of the situation is there were only a small number of these places left by the time the civil rights movement emerged. And I argue that if, in fact, this had been more spread, which I also argue was possible, then um, the civil rights movement would have had something of a different character, both more interracial and more successful uh, economically in fighting for the rights of African Americans and other non-whites. And then there's Teamsters Local 688 in St. Louis. How racially quality focused was this local? This is interesting. So this is a very militant, interracial, civil rights oriented local that was not communist led, but was led by two left wing socialists, one black, one white. Uh, Beginning in 1951, they implemented a community Stewart system and push for reforms in the black community in St. Louis. Members of the local served as a base for the war on slums. They got better garbage pickup, street repair, police protection, recreational facilities, which were much worse in the black community than in the white community. They picketed um, ghetto supermarkets to get price reductions one higher payments for state welfare. They successfully lobbied for the hiring of black firefighters, um, teaching African-American history in schools, and challenged way before their time what's really a key issue today, police brutality in St. Louis. So this was a very civil rights oriented local, and they 
uh, also did things to try to win whites in the lo in this Teamster local to support interracialism. So what role then do you see the failure, the defeat of interracial unionism in the South? How do you see it um, relating to uh, white supremacy, the perpetuation of white supremacy in the South, the white backlash in the South, the Southern strategy promoted by the Republican Party? What kind of a causal link do you see between uh, union organizing and its failures and, and those phenomena? I see a direct link between the defeat of interracial unionism uh, in the South the, the, the repression of individual anti-racists and the, their inability to organize during the civil rights period uh, was able to fuel the so-called white backlash leading to unchallenged white resistance. So in the book, I trace the attempts of the Republican Party to appeal to racism to win whites in the South to the Republican Party, beginning with Goldwater in 1964 the Republican Party openly embraced the Southern strategy to which Democrats were not immune, formulated by Nixon, and they particularly um, decided they would follow the lead of the racist Alabama governor, George Wallace, who was fairly successful among whites around the country in the 1964 and 1968 primaries. This strategy continues with the now rehabilitated Ronald Reagan, who campaigned against crime on the street, welfare queens, and began his 1984 re-election campaign in Philadelphia, Mississippi, the site of the 1964 brutal murders of the civil rights martyrs James Cheney, Michael Swerner, and Andrew Goodman. It continued with the also rehabilitated, supposedly a gentleman, Bush One's racist 1988 Willie Horton campaign ads accusing um, falsely the Democratic presidential candidate um, from having allowed a racist, uh, a rapist to escape. And, uh, and there's a really a straight line from these Republican attempts to appeal to white racism to the open racist, misogynist, anti-immigrant, egocentric, must be some more adjectives, Donald Trump and I argue that he's no anomaly in the post-war period, but he's, he's clearly what Republicans have looked to. I also argue that there's um, a strain in the Democratic Party, more complicated because they try to appeal particularly to non-whites, Latinos, and African-Americans, Asians, among others. So mostly their uh, racial appeals are more subtle and more complicated. Uh, so that's what I see the defeat of interracial unionism in the South leading to uh, the nature of the Republican Party, to Donald Trump, and the situation that we're in in the country today. And I also argue that it could have been different. What are the prospects, do you think? What is the potential for, for a labor upsurge, an upsurge in labor organizing and militancy in the South in the future and, and hopefully in the near future? So the South is interesting. Quite a bit of all the auto parts industry has moved to the South. Virtually all the new plants from trans, auto transplants. Transplants are, are foreign companies that set up uh, production facilities in the United States. 25% of auto production in the country um, are from transplants, and they're almost exclusively uh, located in the South at this point. The South also has um, big uh, chicken and pork processing and, and beef processing places. They have a variety of industries where workers feel that they need to organize. And I think the present situation with the coronavirus has made many of these places less safe and workers more upset and angry that companies are not taking any of their issues seriously. So while one can't predict these things for sure, 
my contacts with Southern labor organizers suggest that there's more militancy and more readiness to organize in the South than there's been for a long time. Some of the major distribution centers, um, warehouses, as we know, that they're called logistics centers. Some of these main shipping centers are located in uh, urban areas in the South. Um, so e-commerce, as it's taken over from actual retail stores, one of the largest shipping centers in the country is in Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, Memphis, for those who don't know, is at the top of the Mississippi River bordering on Mississippi, definitely a southern city. And these warehouse workers are subject to not only brutal pace of work, injuries, and now um, getting uh, sick, potentially dying because their health is not being protected by their companies. So I think there's an impetus for organizing. We'll have to see whether it actually bears fruit, but I think there's greater possibilities now than there have been in, um, for a while. Michael Goldfield, Professor Emeritus of Political Science and Fellow at the Fraser Center for Workplace Issues at Wayne State University, He's a veteran labor agitator and organizer, author of books like The Decline of Organized Labor in the United States and The Color of Politics, Race and the Mainsprings of American Politics. We've been talking about his new book. It's called The Southern Key, Class, Race, and Radicalism in the 1930s and 1940s. Mike, congratulations on your new book, and thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. This has been my pleasure. And that program first aired on June 16th, 2020. And this is CS, suggesting the important thing is not to stop questioning, as Albert Einstein once said, and we hope you'll join us next time. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. You can visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio, resources, and more. You can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio, and you can follow us on Twitter at Radio Against. 